from Evo Hemp Productions and the 40 Acre Co-op. It's Dirty Words. My name's Ari, here with my co-hosts, Jordan, Angela, and Harold. On the show today are the founders of the 40 Acre Co-op, our co-hosts, Angela Dawson and Harold Robinson. We were not able to secure the contract because we couldn't get the housing set up, and we had to sell this really high quality uh, genetics of organic hogs at like a fire sale price. So it was pretty heart wrenching. Just remember being in the barn with the sow. She was, she just had a whole huge litter of piglets. You know, she was going through and having her babies and doing her squealing, and and I was squealing right along with her because I was crying in the barn. And not only does this suck, but like there has to be something that we can do about this. Now, Angela and Harold created the first national black farmer co-op since the Reconstruction era. In 1920, nearly a million black farmers worked on 40 million acres of land, making up a seventh of farm owners. Today, only about 49,000 of them remain, making up just 1.4% of the nation's farm owners, with less than 4.7 million acres of land, and nearly 90% loss. In this very small group are two people that are actively reversing this trend, and those people are Angela Dawson and her husband, Harold Robinson. Angela and Harold are pretty used to beating the odds. The new couple once lost their farm after being denied a USDA loan on unfair grounds. After starting over on a much smaller farm nearby, they created the 40-acre co-op to help black farmers cultivate hemp and change their historical narrative. Angela Dawson is a fourth-generation Midwest farmer, cooperative advocate, and a public health researcher with 25 years' experience of community development. Her passions have been to integrate her academic and professional expertise to solve emergent community issues related to agriculture, technology, and entrepreneurship. Harold Robinson is a third-generation farmer who grew up on a small farm in northern Iowa. He's a former police deputy, an army veteran, with two tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. Currently, Harold is the chief project manager, covering transportation, logistics, and property management for the co-op. Following pilot crops in 2019 and 2020, 2021 was the co-op's first official year as a wholesale and retail operation. The co-op also recently secured its first commercial relationship with Evo Hemp, a hemp nutrition company based in Colorado. The grit that it took to face this challenge comes from a complex story, not unlike many other farmers, especially farmers of color. Super happy to uh, be here today, guys, on our first episode of our Dirty Words podcast. And uh, here we are the hosts, myself, Jordan, Ari, and uh, from 40 Acres, Angela and Harold. And uh, with our first episode, we're going to focus a bit on Angela and Harold, who are the founders of 40 Acres. And uh, so just to start, Angela, I'd love to uh, just find out a little bit of background about you and how you ended up in the agricultural space. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to be uh, hosting with you on this show. I'm excited about what Dirty Words can do for the industry and for farming in general. So uh, thank you guys for holding space with us this afternoon on the podcast, morning or evening or wherever anyone is listening from. I just want to say 
a lot about farming has to do with it chose me and I didn't choose it. And that's what I like to tell people, because once you really get into the details of my farming story, it's very complex. Uh, Not unlike too many uh, others, especially farmers of color and black farmers in the U.S., our history with farming and agriculture in general is is very layered. Um, So I do start out with letting folks know that, you know, I didn't choose to farm. Farming chose me. I come from a long line of family of farmers, four generations, five if you count uh, the ancestor that was forced to slave uh, as a farmer. But uh, in general, I was a professional. I was in law school and I was a professional pursuing advanced degrees and, and a corporate career uh, as, ev- as every other educated uh black person would want to do. And then I was introduced, actually, I met Harold at a law networking event. And, uh, and he is an active farmer. He's one of the farmers, one of the rare farmers in the U.S., one of the rare black farmers in the U.S. who actually kept up with his farming enterprise, even when he was down to, you know, one or two acres. Farming was also in his blood. And it was something that he didn't get away from. Unlike a lot of us where, you know, the history of black farming in the U.S., 98% of black farmers have lost their farming businesses over the last 100 years. So he's uh, Harold's an anomaly in and of itself is that he was an active farmer at a time when there weren't, I, I believe, even in the state where I'm at, where we live in Minnesota, I'm not even sure that there were any other black farmers. So he immediately caught my eye uh, when he told me the farming story and really um, it made me delve back into my own farming history. And it just really opened up a whole Pandora's box of experiences. And that was, you know, over six years ago. That's awesome. I didn't realize that it was actually you meeting Harold that would inspire that that's what inspired you to get into farming again. So that's a really cool story that I just didn't even know. Um, So that's really awesome. One thing I'd like to dive a little bit into, I know that growing up you had an interesting childhood and Prince was very, uh, very much a part of that childhood. If you could just tell us any stories that you have along with that or any anecdotes, that would just be great to hear, you know, any, anything that, um, you have to share with that. I'm sure that was a unique, uh, experience for sure. Yeah, you know, I didn't really understand how unique the experience was at the time because I was very young. I was very young, impressionable. Uh, it was about the ages from, you know, six to 12, five to 12 that uh, Prince lived with my family. But, you know, that has a little bit to do also with our farming story and that um, a lot of the farming history that uh, I share with other, especially black and indigenous families is that, uh, you know, a couple of generations ago, we had experienced a lot of relocation with the Indian Relocation Act and with a lot of the, the land being taken from the farmers. And so what ended up happening was there's a lot of um, sort of a little bit of separation and a lot of uh, foster care. So I was a foster child. Uh, my mother was also for a while. And also my grandmother was, but, you know, different people have different kinds of experience within that foster system, right? So for me, luckily, I was fostered by my aunt, my great aunt, 
and I was actually fostered by my great aunt and my grandmother. So they were sisters and they decided that they were going to raise me together collectively. And my great aunt who fostered me is just an amazing woman who has a powerful story in and of herself. Her name is Bernadette Anderson, very influential here in Minnesota, but she basically took me under her wing. And then uh, not even a year later, she also took Prince under her wing in terms of bringing them in the home, bringing us in her home and allowing us to live there. And so it was an amazing time for me because, you know, I was exposed to the Minneapolis sound being developed, you know, right in the basement of the home I was living in. And so uh, that meant, you know, band members coming in and out. Uh, Morris Day had an orange van that he would park outside that was like a, a living room van. It had all the, the fuzzy dice and the fuzzy furniture in it. Uh, I, could, I couldn't sit in there a lot for a long time. I could just run in and run back out because it was for the bigger kids. Uh, they were all older than me, but I was trying to get soak up every single opportunity. And really, it really made my childhood quite amazing, to tell you the truth. I found a lot of creative outlets for, you know, some of the changes that I was going through as I was developing as a young adolescent. And I actually just really watched Prince and the rest of the band members come together as young, you know, talented black artists and just uh, create something out of nothing. And so it was an amazing time to, to be in Minnesota. And I didn't know how important it was until uh, the, the song that was, they were practicing in the basement a lot was at the time it was soft and wet. And it was, I knew every single word to the, and every single lyric of the song. I had moves and dances that I created from there. And then, you know, one weekend I saw them on American Bandstand singing that same song. And that's when I kind of knew that there was something special about uh, our family and about where I was raised. and. It's really have has always been a source of pride and um, and even just really uh, what's the what, resilience for me. I think that's really incredible about you know not only uh, like you said just having someone in your life like that show you what is possible because not only was Prince you know one of the greatest black artists of all time, but he was one of the greatest artists of all time. And, and just that uh, you, you know, I, I think it's so important and to be able to see people are similar to you and people that you grew up with kind of achieve these levels of success because it really opens up the kind of possibilities of, you know, what you can do yourself. Absolutely. You know, just to, to bring that to a local reference, you know, representation is so important just in all uh, aspects of, you know, human development, I think. And and I was just uh, we were talking in our community about how the new uh, Supreme Court Justice Kentaji Brown has sister locks. You know, and that's and that's just like a representation thing, you know, as for for my daughters and for my granddaughters. It's just something important just to see someone who's able to represent what a, a successful track might be for someone who looks like you and that it is possible. And even more important in Minnesota, which, you know, has some pretty dire statistics when it comes to life opportunities and quality of life for people of color. So it was really an amazing experience for me. And it's something that everyone in our community, really, because uh, Prince was, I mean, even Harold, even though I didn't know him at the time, Harold was around and he was also impacted by, uh, you know, seeing Prince in the neighborhood and, and the music that Prince was creating everywhere he went, Prince was creating music.
And so uh, anywhere that you would see him, he'd be associated with some kind of creative pursuit around music. And that was just really an amazing blessing for our community. Wow, that's incredible. That kind of brings us to our next question. Harold, I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, your background and, and, and your origin story. Well, my background is um, my dad, he built Minneapolis Moline tractors. He uh, transferred to Charles City, Iowa to build tractors down there. And then that's where I grew up um, in, on a farm. I had about 500 acres to play on. Oh, it was, um, it was quite unique. Um, we, I had a pony. Um, my dad also helped me ride, learn how to ride my pony and do things like that. Um, we had a garden outside, tomatoes, collard greens, um, different vegetables, carrots, onions. Um, and then what we do is, uh, I would make a teepee out of the, uh, corn stalks and I put a table out by the side of the road and I sold my vegetables on the side of the road. I did 4-H as a kid with uh, bulls, and uh, I had a, a charlet, white charlet, and I had a black Angus bull that I took to show. Um, yeah, it was very unique childhood. And when we obviously we moved back to Minnesota, I never really gave up the farm, but I kind of downsized and um, kind of made it so that I could do some of the things in the city. And then I bought a farm in Wisconsin and when I met Angela and we uh, started farming out there and one thing led to another. We went to Oregon and uh, had a good successful farm out there. Um, came back here and now we're growing hemp and we're doing pretty good doing that too. What was it like? You know, I imagine, you know, growing up as a kid, there wasn't a lot of farmers or you know uh, people that looked like you or you know that were in your community like what what was it hard did, did you did you find you know strength from it well yeah it was very hard at first um uh, being the only black kid in the school um being having my own water fountain my own bathroom my own lunch table i had to uh back in kindergarten you'd have to take a nap. So I couldn't take a nap where the other kids were. I had to go to the other side of the room. Um, it was very difficult until I started playing sports and started making a name for myself as sports. Um, then when I came back to Minneapolis, it was a, a whole different other area. Now you're taking a farm boy with cowboy boots, jeans, big belt buckle, and you're putting them in a rural in the city. So now i'm totally different you know uh yeah what drove you to you know leaving the kind of the farm life and, and heading more towards kind of the city well my dad retired and he had the house in minneapolis still that my older brother left that him and his family lived in so we uh just came back to minnesota and um he retired and we opened up a hardware store me and my dad and we worked in the hardware store all the way through, I say, sixth grade all the way through high school. I had a job in the hardware store, but it made me strong. Uh, now I can, being in that element, I can kind of go into an all-white rural area and not have any kind of feelings about uh, who I am or what I represent because I, I walk really proud and usually people approach me um, before I even approach them. 
So, Angela, if you can kind of describe that kind of uh, night or day that that you and uh, Harold first met, and you know what was that first conversation like? It was it was it was completely by accident. Nothing was intentional, and we have all kinds of running jokes about it now. But basically, uh, we were in a we we decided we both patronized black owned businesses as much as possible it sounded like so there's a black owned uh sort of networking uh club in downtown minneapolis and i actually was going there for uh a lawyer's networking event because i was in law school and i was just trying to get out kind of looking for prospective employers or to network in the in the legal community and it just so happened that uh harold was on his way to his farm and he stopped there for a couple of drinks and just to see some of his friends at the restaurant while I was having the uh, event there at the same time. So uh, I actually thought he was part of the event. So I was passing out my business card to everyone and and I gave him uh, one of my business cards and he asked me what I did. And I told him that, you know, I was in law school and I was a writer. And then uh, he said, well, you should write a book about me. <laughs> and I said, what makes you so special? Why would I want to write a book about you? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good yeah, pickup line. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, and that's exactly. And that's what he said. Well, I'm probably I'm a farmer. I have a farm and I'm probably one of the only black farmers that you'll ever meet around here. And then that did kind of pique my interest. Like, did he just say farmer? Because that is a rare sighting in Minnesota to see a black farmer. Even now, today, we're finding out that, you know, the Department of Ag here is asking us to help them locate where the black farmers are in the state uh, because they just don't know where they are. And so um, and I wanted to know more about how is this guy surviving and living on a farm like where where is this is not happening this is not something that's common uh my own grandparents were you know urbanized off of the farm and you know we had small urban gardens but never like someone who actually had a farm so i i wanted to see it uh (laughs) even though i didn't let him know that i wanted to see it he actually is the one that uh sent me flowers the next day and asked if i would have dinner with him but i was super curious to see who was this black guy that had a farm in minnesota and yeah it was eventually a couple couple of weeks later i went by to visit and sure enough he had goats and chickens and uh talking about he was talking about getting a pig and it was amazing uh he grew and i started talking to people that knew him that said that you know he grew acres of vegetables and just would give them away to family and friends and that's when in in my own mind i thought i think i could do something with this guy harold what was your kind of first impression of angela when when you first met well at first i kind of said uh, she might be a little bit out of my league when she said she was a writer and went to the University of Minnesota. You know, I, I was on my bike at the time, so I thought I could probably impress her with the Harley Davidson. Um, and it was <laughs> it was my friend, which we found out, uh, one of my best friends, we found out is actually one of Angela's cousins. And when we and Trent, his name was Trent Bowman, were in high school, and we always said that we wanted to open a bar. I said, well, if you open a bar, I'm going to have a seat. I'm going to be Norm. This is going to be my seat. Anybody that sits here has to get up when I come and go somewhere else and sit. And so I'm sitting at my seat, and I have a nameplate. It said my biker name on it, Pac-Man, and it was right there. So everybody knows that this was my seat. And she came walking by, and so I 
you know, started talking to her. And like she said, uh, she told me she was a writer. And I told her, well, the best book you could write would be about me. And uh, she still hasn't wrote it yet, but uh, <laughs> we still waiting on that book. I, I still, I'm still, pu- I'm still pushing for it. So I had to make her, I had to make her my wife eventually. Here, so didn't want to lose, didn't want to lose this kind of a catch. Once you guys met, is that kind of what uh, in started the idea of Forty Acres? Uh, no, the Forty Acre came about um, when we. Um, we got together and I always thought that it would be a good kind of kick in the butt to people that, you know, think about uh, the 40 acres and the mule that we were promised back in the Civil War. So I came up with the 40 acre and the mule the concept. Yeah, I was going to say, but a little bit before that is uh, what we actually decided was we I had been thinking about um cooperatives i was been involved in a a lot with cooperative business development a long time ago and one of the things that i noticed when i met harold with him having one or two acres was that uh it was so rare but like he it was so rare for a black farmer to have any acreage but i thought it was really interesting to know that he did not have any farm support services at all like i just thought that was very weird that of all, all the farmers that I knew across the country, they had so much investment and capital and equipment and materials. And I just thought, why is this guy running this whole farm with nothing? And there's people around, like all surrounding around him with like millions of dollars of access to capital and credit to have their operations. And, you know, Harold was only able and they would and he actually wanted to buy property around there, but they wouldn't give him any more than one or two acres. So I just always thought that was something that was a little curious in the back of my mind, but I didn't really say too much about it. But I just I did start kind of asking around other to other companies like other farmers trying to figure out how they were getting their resources and they had a whole different set of resources than Harold had. And I just always thought that was curious. Um, And then when we decided that we wanted to start our own farm up here in Northern Minnesota, and we actually asked, this was our opportunity to go to the USDA and say, Hey, we have a farm business. It was a legitimate business set up. We had animals, we had acreage, we had gotten all that stuff by ourselves. And I read that, you know, the USDA gives socially disadvantaged farmers. Uh, you could just apply for a microloan for $50,000, which is supposed to be pretty easy and breezy as long as you had your ducks in a row and a business plan. And so I did that. I created a business plan and I uh, went to the USDA and I was all excited. And I was like, here, you know, and and they laughed me out of the office. Basically, you know, when they came out to do their site visit, that's when, you know, they said, what are you doing here? What makes you think that you can do this here? Uh, those kinds of like uh, questions that I don't think ever were answered to their satisfaction, but basically we were denied. And, um, and I thought that there, and, and, and it was just, and it, and I was connecting that with the fact that Harold had been farming all his life and never had any farming resources and the two acres that he was only able to get. And it just started coming together to me as 
this this seems like this is something more systemic than individual, you know? Was reading about during uh, right after the Great Depression and right after you know kind of the the Dust Bowls and the the U.S. government created all of these federal funding programs to get farmers access to capital. But what they did was is they made it uh, committees decide who gets access to capital. So who do we think was running these committees that were deploying this capital? Yes, you know. Uh, they were not inclusive. We'll just say that. And that an entire system that we end up with today where, you know, less than one and a half percent of farmers today are, are representative of the black community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one of the other things I, we noticed is that just with the, the agency with which this, this USDA agent used her discrimination without like, you, you know, I guess, you know, being a living in the urban area for such a long time and, you know, coming from the corporate world, I've been through all the diversity trainings like ad nauseum. I've done all the like the diversity, affirmative action, inclusion, equity. I've done all those trainings and you could definitely tell that these folks did not have any of that training. Just the words and the, you know, certain terms that most people don't use in, in employment or business. Like she was throwing around a lot of those terms that just would mostly be like really offensive, you know, in everyday business. So just knowing that she didn't have that training is really what led me to believe that, you know, the USDA has a real systemic problem in that not only does it not, you know, value diversity or equity and inclusion, but like the agents are going rogue in how they decide to implement the policies and the programs that are being advertised on a federal level, but like they're not being operationalized like that locally. So with this kind of development and you, as you're working on obviously building this for 40 acres and supporting uh, the black community, what kind of led you to expand to also uh, want to help the indigenous community in your area? I think a lot of the enlightenment, what's happening right now with the, especially in the agricultural space is that we're really starting to look at the land in more socially and ecologically responsible ways. And so, first of all, my own, you know, personal upbringing is, is actually a blending of multiple cultures. And so I identify myself as a black indigenous woman. That's most of all of the women that are made up in my family. And a lot of the just personal training and farming training that I got has been primarily from black and indigenous women. And so also where the 40 acre farm is at, uh, is really located. You could, it's on the Anishinaabe people's land, which is contested land. Um, and the, where our farm is specifically located, it was, uh, it was set aside in a federal allotment, but it was after it was taken from the Anishinaabe people, it's been set aside for a long time. And it actually wasn't until, uh, the late eighties that the developer who built our house was able to get permission to take it out of that federal allotment to develop the land. And so um, I think it's just kind of undeniable and, and it's really important to include indigenous peoples when you're talking about issues that have to do with the land. Uh, we're also right across the street from um, the, this cultural, native cultural language camp. 
that is, you know, teaches uh, indigenous children about some of their original language. So I just thought it would be, you know, very disingenuous, genuous to not acknowledge, you know, not only the land that we're working on, but our own, you know, heritage as, as a community and as a culture with the land that we're working on. You guys, you know, get denied this loan because the the federal government. Where where does the cooperative light come on in your head? You get home and and you're like, man, that this sucks. There's got to be a better way to do this. Absolutely, yeah, that's just what happened. And because you know, it was honestly to tell you the truth, like at the time, it was a this sucks moment. But it was really hard for us because. Um, Harold was was still working off the farm, but he had done all the work to get the farm started while he was working his full time trucking job. And so we had built up a herd of really beautiful, high quality organic hogs and we had a contract on the line. And that's the reason why we needed the microloan from the USDA is in order to get this contract, you had to set up your uh, organic hog housing in such a way it's um, that has to do with um, humane treatment of animals. And so there's a just a certain kind of way that the that the pig is lives its life out. And we had to set up this housing in a certain way. And so we needed the money in order to set up the housing in a certain way in order to be certified for this organic hog contract with this company. And so we were not able to secure the contract because we couldn't get the housing set up. And we had to sell this really high quality uh, genetics of organic hogs at like a fire sale price. So it was pretty heart wrenching at the time. Um, I was in the barn. I just remember being in the barn with the sow. She was, she just had a whole huge litter of piglets and you know I was helping her through the labor process and you know she was going through and having her babies and doing her squealing and and I was squealing right along with her because I was crying in the barn and Harold was out working and and I was just really doing exactly that like not only does this suck but like there has to be something that we can do about this and so I did study the co-op model uh, for a long time, and I've seen it happen very successfully here in the state of Minnesota. There's a lot of very successful cooperatives here. All of them, most of them lack diversity, especially in leadership. But um, I know that it's a very powerful tool for organizing resources for people. So I definitely thought that a co-op was a good solution to this. And then, uh, you know, just talking to Harold about what our next, you know, we were trying to really figure out what our next phase was going to be. He found a way to humanely sell the, the hogs. And Harold, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you sold our hogs and we were able to, uh, how we identified how special the genetics were. Oh, well, um, yeah, I sold, actually sold the hogs to a Jamaican friend of mine who actually has the contract with Organic Valley. And I sold them under the conditions that if I was to get another farm, uh, I would want my genetics back. So I would want to buy my genetics back from him. And um, we got this place here, and uh, my next call was to my friend Orville and said, hey, I'm coming out to get my genetics back. And he obliged me, and I got some back, and we uh, successfully had two uh, litters this year of uh, really nice organic hogs. Yes, but what did he say about your genetics? That they were the best genetics he's ever seen. And he's been raising hogs for like 30 years. Damn. 
That's awesome. Yeah, it was awesome, but it, it, it hurt when I had to get rid of them. Yeah, it hurt to the core. Um, but yeah, we, we got my genetics back and uh, they're looking pretty good. Um, we'll probably be having some for Juneteenth. With the genetics, so how, how do you um, go about uh, kind of dialing in the genetics for the hogs? Well, I looked at size and length. The longer the hog, the more pork chops you're going to get. You know, short little stocky ones. I did. I, I winged them out, and you know, just kind of picked a, a good hardy uh, boar. And I had two uh, sows that were just as big as the boar, and the bigger they are, the bigger the babies are. So that's kind of how I did it. The other thing about these genetics, where they were, they are a special, they are a unique brand of organic hog because with organic hogs you have to be careful about uh their strength right and their immunity so because we don't use chemicals and we don't feed them uh synthetic stuff and we don't treat them with synthetic chemicals that they have to also be a strong and healthy breed and uh so they're really hardy to like they don't get illness they they're really hardy to disease they're really hardy to our environment and our climate and they stay pretty healthy they're also really docile and not uh, aggressive so they get along with the other animals on the farm and you know Harold even though he's not like uh, a specific scientist but he really uh, knows how to eye all that stuff when selecting the pigs and and the genetics that we use and but Harold's friend did not want to give us our original pigs back did did you were you able to fight for them or no (laughs) No, I got I got some of the offsprings, so I I still got to pick out which ones I got, and uh, I I named them back then. There it was uh, Biggie Smalls and Faith Evans and Little Kim. Oh, very cool. So now I now I have Little Biggie, Little Faith, and Little 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 Kim. Faith Evans <laughs> or Little Kim, Little Kim. yeah. You got the love triangle, right? It's worked out to be pretty good right now. I love it. Well, how did you guys go from hogs to hemp? When we went out on the West Coast, we really started to look at, we saw it was working successfully and and, and other farmers were making not only, you know, if we couldn't find the USDA money, we had to figure out other ways to sustain the farm. So uh, we looked into farming different kinds of, you know, we penciled the CSA model and you know the vegetable growing and that doesn't really make decent money i mean really when you look at the agricultural system farmers don't really make good money off of anything even the row crops and the and the corn and soybeans they get like 10 maybe 15 cents on the dollar if they're lucky but farmers don't get paid that much to farm especially vegetables and so um we were looking at trying to, you know, we didn't want the farming experience to be so stressful like it was for previous generations. We want to be abundant farmers and prosperous farmers. And so we looked at a couple of different models and really the hemp and cannabis model is the one that had the best outcome in terms of on the balance sheet. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, Jordan and I honestly got into hemp 10 years ago by by starting Evo Hemp. 
simply around the fact that it was such an incredible crop for farmers. And it was this time where, you know, the average age of a farmer, regardless of their race, is 60 years mm-hmm. old. And, you know, young people don't really aren't excited about getting into farming. And, you know, it's uh, like you said, it's incredibly hard to make money. And once Jordan and I did some research about industrial hemp and, and hemp seeds and the benefits of hemp nutrition, and the farmers up in Canada were earning, you know, four times the income that farmers here in the state growing corn, wheat, and soy. And we thought, wow, like, why is it still illegal for our farmers to grow hemp? But if you go across in Canada, you, you can grow hemp and import it into the U.S. And it was kind of ridiculous and really got us passionate in the first place to try to bring hemp farming back to the U.S. Nice. That's powerful. Thank you for your service. Appreciate it. And, uh, you know, Harold, I'm curious, since you are the, you know, you're a master in genetics, you know, might not be classically trained, but have some serious skills. Tell us a little bit about your hemp strain, uh, Wonder Woman. Angela's more into that than I am. Actually, I'm more of the the hands-on. I kind of, she knows the technology and how to word it better than I can. I'm more, let's get dirty and let's get in the ground. That's kind of... So I'll let Angela answer that question. Yeah, well, Harold, you know, Harold basically tells me what he needs in order to grow. Because Harold is one of those kind of farmers like my dad, where, you know, I say that he can he can grow anything from a rock. Like you give him a pile of rocks and he will figure out how to turn that into an abundant acre of greens and herbs. Like that's just the skill level that he has with growing stuff. And, you know, even in, in his own sort of, computing he creates companion planting and he does different designs in the garden and all this kind of creative stuff and so I basically you know we studied a lot when we grew on the west coast and then just asked him everything that he needs in order to grow an abundant crop here and what he would look for what would a successful crop look like to him and then I also included some of my own sort of priorities around organic and sustainable farming and regenerative farming that's just something that my own grandmother taught to me when I spent time with her she always grew our own food we always had our own vegetables and mostly my diet consisted of you know the vegetables that she grew and then the fish that she would fish that we'd come up in the north and and around the reservations and fish with our relatives. So that's mostly what I was raised on. And so um, there were just some inherent lessons and growing vegetables with my grandmother that I knew about sustainable farming and didn't know that it was like a sexy, trendy thing until I got into farming and, and heard that this term regenerative farming and they're having conferences about regenerative farming. I thought it was something else, but I was like, oh, you mean that stuff my grandma's been showing me all the, oh, that's what they're talking about? So um, basically just, but but a lot of regenerative farmers, I mean, they're starting to be more in the hemp industry, but when we first got started, everyone was like spraying their plants with chemicals and doing all kinds of weird stuff to control the plant. And still a lot of people just believe that, you know, you have to douse it with chemicals in order for it to, you know, be safe from pests and bugs and stuff like that. And that's something that uh, is really inherent and strong about the Wonder Woman strain is that she's really pest resistant. She's disease resistant. She grows in a really short photo period time shorter than most hemp, which is about 100 days. She she flowers in about 75 days. 
And um, it's just all of those characteristics that we wanted to have in a successful grow, very strong terpene smells um, and testing really good in terms of all of the standards that you know, the industry has for low THC and that kind of stuff. And so we basically took all of our favorite characteristics of our favorite strains. And, you know, she's on about nine generations now because we did do a lot of that growing indoor until we just came up with the perfect blend of the characteristics and the phenotypes that we wanted in that strain. And so not only is she strong and pest resistant and easy to grow in organic methods, but also like she flowers really early and she helps us be productive on that side. And she creates really, you know, strong, uh, juicy buds and all of the things that, you know, we would want in a, in a successful crop. So do you guys keep that genetics for yourself or is that something that you offer for your co-op members as well? Yeah, we had some co-op members uh, grow it last year. And, and actually what we do is just because we know so much about the strain and we've worked so much with it, we, we have grow plans that we offer that are specific to the strain that we know works because we've tried it. And so uh, we do offer the genetics to members at a discounted price. We also offer it to the public, but members get a discount. And then, you know, if they want to grow it for us and have us sell it, then we would, uh, we would buy it as long as they used our, our SOPs, our standard operating procedures. But, you know, there's still a lot of farmers out there that even some who are members of the co-op who aren't quite ready to use our, our operations and our methods that, you know, if they are putting, they're growing hemp and putting chemicals on it, we just, we, we're not really interested in using any of that, those products or, you know, using that crop. So we really still are educating people about the importance of using organic and sustainable practices, even if you're not certified organic, just the importance of not allowing chemicals to, to be in the proximity of the plant is really something that we emphasize with our members. So as long as people can get with that, then you know, we're good with working with them. And we feel like that's just the best way to grow that plant. Now, we're really excited to be uh, using Wonder Woman in our uh, products. And we actually just got it into our gummies. It's just uh, really interesting, you know, like you were just saying about pesticides in hemp and cannabis. There's a disconnect in the hemp and cannabis space where you would think it would be a lot more holistic, but there's a ton of pesticides often used. Chemicals are used often. Um artificial flavors, just bad ingredients into the finished products as well. And so, you know, it's something that we're obviously very aligned on. Right. And you know, what's so important about that too, is what we feel like is um, how you mentioned, you know, why we thought the co-op model was so important as a way that we can start to help. Cause we also noticed that too. A lot of people are into, you might be farming hemp or cannabis and it's just really for the money and it's not really for the health properties or improving the community or even the environment. And so that's one of the benefits we think of having this co-op model is it allows us to, you know, integrate some values into our work and especially into our farming principles. And so it's really hard to do that outside and other business models because really in the sort of typical old school way of doing business. It's just all about the profit first and the people last. And, and with the co-op model, it's actually flipped and it's really more about the people and the principles first. And then, you know, the money comes along, but it's not at all costs, right? Harold, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, like Angela was saying before, 
when she met you, you may have been the only black farmer, you know, in your area, you know, you grew up as one of the only black farmers in your community or the only black farming family in your community. What brought you back to the land? Like what, what was, what was driving you to say, you know, I, I don't care if there aren't people that look like me. I don't care if they're there, if I'm not going to get the support that everyone else is going to get, like, I, I'm just going to do this because I, I love it. Well, I got back from a tour overseas and I decided that I was going to uh, retire from the military. And when I retired from the military, I was going to move away from the cities. I was living with my sister and I was driving truck and I was uh, you know, we call weekend soldier for a while. I was active duty for a long time and then I became a, a, a weekend soldier and reserve so when i retired from the military i started farming i had i knew i didn't have to be deployed anymore so i could raise the animals and be around um, so that kind of drew me back and then uh, being what you call post-traumatic or whatever I, I don't like being around crowds uh sporting events other like high school i can deal with but anything like professional I don't want nothing to do with it. I, my anxiety kind of kicks in when I say I have an hour and a half to drive to the city. I, my anxiety kicks in and it doesn't leave until I get headed back to the farm. So this is, being on a farm is, is my, like a, if you're a Muslim, it would be Mecca or a Christian, it would be heaven. This is, this is my heaven. This is my heaven, um, and there's no other place on earth that I could feel as comfortable at or on. We offer uh, like people to come out and camp out. Uh, there's a river where you can uh, we can bring you up to one point of the river, and, and you can kayak or canoe down. There's therapy here, and it's you know 24/7 basically. That's, that's why 40 Acres is what it is. It's this character that we, um, that we put out. We, we live it every day. One thing that I know we touched a bit on, um, but I would like to just go a little bit deeper, is, you know, in 1920, black people owned 14% of uh, farms, and today it's less than 1.4%. And so I just wanted to see, um, you know, what are the reasons for that decline? Well, I don't know if Harold has a thought about that, but I say, you know, it, there was policies, you know, with the USDA, the kind of that experience that I had, um, especially if you find in the South, what, when I got on the phone and started talking to other farmers about their experience with the USDA, some of them are like, you wouldn't believe the kinds of stuff that, you know, in, in the South, the you know, the, the racism is, is known to be a lot more, I guess you would say in, in your face. And so the kinds of experience that Southern farmers, Southern black farmers in particular had were just really shocking when I heard those stories. But, um, I think there was a lot of fear put into people after so many denials too. And after so much exclusion, the people just started to feel in the black community like it wasn't, it wasn't a viable uh, occupation anymore. And so 
people were basically urbanized and, and moved to the cities. And so that's why, you know, it's just so rare that you have someone like Harold who just like, even all of the social societal pressures that were forcing black people into the city, Harold still just like figured out a way to say, no, like I'm not a city guy. My father is exactly the same way. Like there's nothing about city life that attracts him for too long of a period. He can only be there for so long and then he has to get back on the farm. So um, I think it's, you know, not just racist policies that, you know, were happening in the USDA, but then it started to be such a struggle and a difficulty for most farmers that they were pretty much traumatized by it. And so I still run into instances where people really associate um, farming with like just horrible struggle and experience and trauma really. And they would never even consider it. Um, And I think some of that's starting to change now, but there is a pretty, um, there's, there's a, there's a really difficult story and past with, with agriculture in this country. And we're hoping, you know, part of the 40 acre story was, you know, to kind of, to bring some healing to that story and turn it around. And something that we didn't hit on today, but we should is, what is the story of 40 acres? Like the, the original story of what was promised to the black community initially, and what did they actually receive? You know, the story of the 40 acres and a mule came from, originated at what we call Special Field Order 15. And that basically was a battlefield order that was uh, from the Union soldier leadership. Uh, There was a lot of slaves who were fighting the the Civil War with the Union uh, Army. And when they were winning, uh, the soldiers were promised 40 acres and a mule when the war was over, when they would settle and go back home. And so as the war was ending, uh, some of the farmers were starting to settle. They took some of the land, their 40 acres and a mule. Uh, This was starting in the South. And and then Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, was assassinated. And his successor rolled it back. And he decided, and he got rid of Special Field Order 15. and, And the farmers that did settle on their lands, they were kicked off and replaced by Confederate soldiers. And really, uh, black farmers have had a struggle with stability ever since. At this point in our history, black farmers, you know, black people, but specifically black farmers, have made such significant contributions to our development. You know, when you really start to look at the history of agriculture in this country and how it's developed, you know, there were farmers who made inventions back in the 1900s and even the late 1800s that we still are using today. And a lot of the inventions, uh, the corn, the corn planter and the plow and refrigerated trucking and actually the CSA model and even the extension services were all created by black farmers or conceptualized by black farmers and patented uh, by many of them. And so with just the, you know, some of the times when I think about the way that black farmers have been shut out of agriculture, I do sometimes wonder like, what kinds of innovations have we lost and what kinds of solutions to some of these pressing problems around, you know, climate change and hunger and that kind of stuff that we could 
be affording if we had, you know, equal opportunities and, and equity within agriculture, how much further along could it that we be? How much of this soil erosion could we have resolved? You know, those kinds of questions come up to me as a farmer when I think about like the narrow, the narrow field, the narrow representation that we have of farmers in agriculture today. You know, Angie, I see you're regularly giving talks and you know speaking in front of groups and and and, and just sharing them the wealth of knowledge that you've gained, which is so important and and overlooked a lot of the times. A lot of people, you know, they try to hold on to that information um, and keep it for themselves as as their you know their advantage. But I, I can really tell with you, it's it's you know you have a passion for wanting to share it. Yeah, you know, I think it's so important for people to know how I, I really do think that we have to learn new ways of doing business together, honestly. And that's informed a little bit of from my agricultural background. But I also know that it's not really easy. I mean, it's not really easy to become a farmer. It's not really easy to run a co-op. And those are two things that we need to support each other on a lot more. And especially when it comes to, you know, using regenerative and agricultural uh, organic practices, this isn't something that's just like a walk in the park. So we really want to, you know, be the leading voice that not only encourages people, but also helps to provide quality information about, you know, how to get it going. And then, you know, the co-op model as a container for training and future support for people who really want to take a serious leap into it and take it seriously so that we can, you know, maybe have a pathway for people to know how to do it in a more sustainable way. We really want, to, you know, hemp to be available, but we want high quality hemp products for our families to be ingesting. We think that it's really important for people to have this kind of container of support and knowledge in order to, to do that. So it's a labor of love for sure. You clearly have a really deep connection with the land. You're, you feel very at home around it, around the animals and, and, and doing things, you know, in, in a regenerative, sustainable manner. That's very obvious in your work. How much of that would you say you were born with and, and that just is who you were? Or how much of it is learned over time um, or kind of gained through experience? Well, I think every part of um, what I do is like my dad taught me, I learned it. Uh, so it just came with the time that I put into everything. Um, I guess it's, it's just natural, I guess. Sounds like it was kind of something that you were kind of born into and, and just kind of, it, it blossomed over time, but it was always kind of there. Right, right. How about you, Angela? You know, I, I probably would have thought that I intellectually learned it, but I, now that I've really experienced it and I've gotten to have this time on the farm year after year, I'm learning more and more that this is like our natural way of being. And there's so much about farming that is similar to our natural cycles uh, and also connecting to my culture and remembering the things that my grandmother taught me is, you know, and in indigenous communities, you know, they believe that the trees and the animals are relatives. So they look at uh, the land and, and 
our responsibility and relationship to the land a lot differently than the old traditional farming sector. So I, the longer I spend on the land, the more I feel like this is all of our natural way of being. That's Angela Dawson and Harold Robinson, the co-founders of the 40 Acre Co-op. As of 2022, the cooperative has over 30 active members with a wait list of over 300. Thanks for listening to the show this week. I'm Ari Sherman, and you've been listening to Dirty Words from Evo Hemp Productions and the 40 Acre Co-op.